Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Heart of the Railroad Problem. Published in 1906 and written by Professor Frank Parsons, this book looks at some of the issues that plagued the railway industry in the early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to iTunes listener from Minnesota, DSJ, for your lovely review. I'm so glad you're enjoying the podcast. Thank you also to iTunes listener from the UK, Red Herring 100. I'm glad the podcast is allowing you to get the sleep that you need. If I've missed any of your comments or messages, please send me a message through the website so I can thank you personally. If you find the podcast beneficial, then I would like to ask a favour of you. Could you please take the time to leave a review in your podcast player of choice? Please also subscribe to the show, and if you know anyone else that needs help with sleep, please feel free to recommend the podcast. If you are a regular listener of the show and would like to say thank you, a great way is to support the show via Patreon or at the boytosleep.com website. Even if it's $1 or $5, your contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need a good night's rest. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Heart of the Railroad Problem Chapter 1 The Law and the Fact It is a principle of the common law that common carriers must be impartial. They cannot legally give undue or unjust preferences or make unequal or extravagant charges. They are bound to provide reasonable and sufficient facilities. They must not refuse to carry any goods or passengers properly applying for transportation. They have no right to grant monopolies or special privileges or unequal preferences but are bound to treat all fairly and impartially. That is the role of the common law, which represents the crystallised common sense and practical conscience of the Anglo-Saxon and every other civilised race. The legal principle that a common carrier must be impartial was established long before the Interstate Commerce Act was passed or the Granger Laws enacted, 
yes, before railways or steamboats were born. They inherited the family character and the family law. It has been applied to them in innumerable cases. There is a solid line of decisions from the infancy of the English law to the present time. Constitutional provisions and state and federal statutes have been passed to affirm and enforce the rule. The railroads themselves declare the rule to be right. And yet, in spite of the railway conscience and the common law, the universal sense of justice of mankind and the whole legislative, executive and judicial power of the government, the rule is not obeyed. On the contrary, disregard of it is chronic and contagious and constitutes one of the leading characteristics of our railway system. In spite of law and justice, our railway practice is a tissue of unfair discrimination, denying the small man equal opportunity with the rich and influential and breaking the connection between merit and success. The railways unjustly favour persons, places and commodities, and they do it so constantly, systematically, habitually. If every instance of unjust discrimination that occurs today were embodied in human form, and the process were continued for a year, the outlaw host would dwarf the Muslim hordes that deluged southern Europe in the days of Charles Martel, outnumber many-fold the Grand Army of the Republic in its palmiest days, and shoulder to shoulder, the dark and dangerous mob would reach across the continent, across the ocean, over Europe and Asia, and around the world. The railways discriminate partly because they wish to, and partly because they have to. The managers favour some interests because they are linked with the interests of the railways or the managers, and they favour some other interests because they are forced to. The pressure of private interest is stronger than the pressure of the law. And so the railroad manager fractures his conscience and breaks the statutes and common law into fragments. One of the most important forms of discrimination is the railroad pass. Many persons of wealth or influence, legislators, judges, sheriffs, assessors, representatives of the press big shippers and agents of large concerns get free transportation while those less favoured must pay not only for their own transportation but for that of the railway favourites also. A farmer and a lawyer occupied the same seat in a railroad car. When the conductor came, the farmer presented his ticket and the lawyer a pass. 
The farmer did not conceal his disgust when he discovered that his seatmate was a dead head. The lawyer, trying to assuage the indignation of the farmer, said to him, My friend, you travel very cheaply on this road. I think so myself, replied the farmer, considering the fact that I have to pay fare for both of us. The free pass system is specially vicious because of its relation to government. Passes are constantly given to public officials in spite of the law and constitute one of the most insidious forms of bribery and corruption yet invented. I have in my possession some photographs of annual passes given by Pennsylvania Railroad in 1903, 1904, and 1905 to members of the state legislature and the Common Council of Philadelphia. The Constitution of Pennsylvania, Section 8 and Article 8, says no railroad, railway, or other transportation company shall grant free passes or passes at a discount to any persons except officers or employees of the company. The question is whether the members of the legislature are employees of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Recently, the Pennsylvania Railroad gave notice that after January 1st, 1906, no free passes would be issued except to employees. As we have seen reason to believe, this may still include members of the legislature, and even if the order should happen, to be enforced according to the common exception of the word employees, there are plenty of ways in which free transportation can be given to men the railroad management deems it desirable to favour. Railroads have made such orders before, and in every case the fact has proved to be that the order simply constituted an easy method of lopping off the overgrown demand for passes. A ready excuse for denying requests, the railroad does not wish to honour without in the least interfering with its power of favouring those it really wishes to favour. In cutting off passes under said order to multitudes of city officials in Pittsburgh, lately the Pennsylvania Railroad officers stated that the demand had become so great that those having free rides were actually crowding the paying passengers on many of the trains. The Philadelphia North American declared that in that city every big and little politician expected free passage when he requested it, and that there was no ward healer so humble that he might not demand transportation for himself and friends to Atlantic City, Harrisburg, or any other point of the Pennsylvania line. The Springfield Republican said, It does not appear to be recognised 
in the praise given to the present action of the railroad company, how great an impeachment of its management the old order constituted. We are told that passes were issued literally in bundles for the use of political workers, big and little. We watched with much interest to see what the railroad would really do when the time for full enforcement of the order came. In Pennsylvania, as was anticipated, the order has been used as a basis for refusing passes to the overgrown horde of grafters who have feasted so long at the Pennsylvania's tables. The railway does not want anything this year in Pennsylvania that the grafters can give it, and it is an excellent opportunity to punish the Pittsburgh politicians for allowing the gold lines to enter the city. But in Ohio, the situation is different, and in spite of the recent order, the time-honoured free passes have been sent to every member of the Ohio legislature. A press dispatch from Columbus January 1st says... One of the most notable events that marked the opening of the General Assembly today was the unexpected arrival of the railroad passes for every member. The Pennsylvania first to announce that the time-honored graft would be cut off was the first to send the little tickets and the other lines followed suit. The Pennsylvania is not alone in its delicate generosity to legislatures and other persons of influence. The practice is practically universal. From Maine to California, there is not a state in which the railroads refrain from giving passes to legislatures, judges, mayors, assessors, etc., and the roads expect full value for their favours. Some time ago, a member of the Illinois legislature applied to the president of a leading railroad for a pass. In reply, he received the following. Your letter of the 22nd to president, requesting an annual over the railroad of this company, has been referred to me. A couple of years ago, after you had been furnished with an annual over this line, you voted against a bill which you knew the company was directly interested in. Do you know of any particular reason, therefore, why we should favour you with an annual this year? The railroads give passes to legislatures and public officials, not as a rule, in any spirit of philanthropy or respect for public office, but as a matter of business. And if a legislature does not recognise the obligation that adheres to the pass, the pass is not likely to adhere to him in subsequent years. In many cases, the pass is the first step on the road to railroad servitude. 
Governor Folk said to me, the railroads to bulk legislatures at the start of the buy free pass. It is a misdemeanor by the law of this state to take such a favour, but it seems so ordinary a thing that the legislature takes it. He may start out with good intentions, but he takes a pass and then the railroad people have met him in their power. He has broken the law, and if he does not do as they wish, they threaten to publish the number of his pass. He generally ends by taking bribe money. He's in the railroad power anyway to a certain extent, and thinks he might as well make something out of it. In investigating cases of corruption, I have found that in almost every instance, the first step of the legislature toward bribery was the acceptance of a railroad pass. At the annual dinner of the Boston Merchants Association, January 1906, Governor Folk said, one of our greatest evils is the domination of public affairs by our great corporations, and we will never get rid of corporation dominance till we get rid of the free pass. That is the insidious bribe that carries our legislatures over the line of probity. First seduced by the free pass, destruction is easy. No legislature has a right to accept a free pass, no more right than to accept its equivalent in money. Even the laws against the free pass, Governor Folk says, often play into the hands of the railways and emphasise and fasten corruption upon the state by putting legislatures and officials at the mercy of the railroads in consequence of the fact that the taking of pass is a violation of law so that the railway has a special hold upon the donee as soon as the favour is accepted. This is likely the taking of passes, which is very difficult and seldom achieved. Governor Folk is doing his best to abolish the pass evil. It used to be a common thing for officials of all grades to ride on passes, and any influential person in Jefferson City could get a pass by seeing a member of the House or Senate, who would send a note to Colonel Phelps, and a pass would be forthcoming. Now the legislatures decline to accommodate their friends by making these little requests, for the matter might come to the ear of Governor Folk. Moreover, the government employees in Missouri have been cut off from these railroad courtesies. The statute does not apply to appointive officers, but the governor does not intend that his department shall be honeycombed with railroad influence, if he can help it. One of the officers of a subordinate branch of the government went to him and asked him about the matter. 
I do not want a pass for myself, said the interrogator. But Mr. W. told me that he would like for me to see you before he accepted a pass and see if you had any objections. And I want to add, Governor, that it has always been the custom for the employees in this department to use free passes. Governor Folk's countenance lost its smile for the moment, as he said very slowly and sternly, Tell the employees of your department that if any of my appointees ride upon railway passes, they will be instantly discharged. These insidious bribes, in the guise of courtesy and honour for position, these free passes which Governor Folk denounces as the first steps to corruption, are prevalent in all our states. Even in honest old Maine, the frosty forest state, I found the railroad pass in full bloom. Speaking to a joint committee on the House and Senate at Augusta a few months ago, I exhibited a number of photographs of passes given to legislators and councilmen by one of our big railroads. The members examined these photos with much interest and some facious remarks. On the way into town, a famous lobbyist who has long and close acquaintance with the legislature of Maine laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks over the memory of the scene, puffing out between his explosions the explanation of his merriment. Even one of these fellows has a railroad pass in his own pocket. Inquiry in other directions tend to confirm his statement. It is hardly possible to imagine that the ordinary legislator or judge can be entirely impartial in reference to a railroad bill or suit when he is under obligation to the railroads for past favours and hopes for similar courtesies in the future. When a judge finds that jurors in a railroad case have accepted passes, from the railroad he discharges the jurors as unfit for impartial service. Yet the same judge may have in his pocket an annual pass over all the lines of the road that is plaintiff or defendant in the case. Some railroad presidents and managers have told me that passes are given as mere courtesies and are not intended to influence the conduct of officials. This may be true in some cases, but as a rule, the railroads do not give charity, but expect favour for favour, and value for value, or multiplied value for value. Railroad men have sometimes admitted to me that the psychology of the pass is closely related to that of the bribe, 
and that they sought and obtained political results from the distribution of transportation favours. And aside from such admissions, the evidence on the facts is overwhelming. A prominent judge who had been on the bench for years in one of our best states had always received passes from various railroad companies found at the beginning of a new year that one of the principal railroads had failed to send him the customary pass. Thinking it an oversight, he called the attention of the railroad's chief attorney to the fact. Judge, said the lawyer, did you not recently decide an important case against our company? And was not my decision in accordance with law and justice, said the judge. The attorney did not reply to this, but a few days later, the judge got his pass. After some months, it again became the duty of the judge to render a decision against the company. This second act of judicial independence was not forgiven. The next time he presented his pass, the conductor confiscated it in the presence of many passengers and required the judge to pay his fare. The Railroad Commission in one of our giant states says the fact that the most part passes are given to official persons for the purpose of influencing official conduct. It made manifest by the fact that they are not given to such persons except while they hold official positions. The president of an important railroad is stated to have said that he saved his company thousands of dollars a year by giving annual passes to county auditors, and a man who had been auditor for many years said that the taxes of the railroad company were increased about 20000 a year because it was so stingy with its passes. Members of legislatures and of Congress have told me that after voting against railroad measures, the usual passes were not forthcoming. A little while before the introduction of the rate legislation now pending, in pursuance of President Roosevelt's regulative policy, a congressman from the far west was visiting with us. He had free transportation for himself and family wherever in the United States any time he wanted it. A lady in the family asked him if it was the same way with the rest of the congressmen and he said yes. I have in my notes conversations with senators and representatives from 18 states, and all of them stated, in reply to my questions, that passes were an established and regular part of the perquisites of a member of Congress. 
But since the Ench Townsend bill for the fixing of rates by a government commission came on deck, I understand that the congressmen who supported it are learning the lesson conveyed in the past-denying letter above quoted, as some of the railroads are refusing all the requests of such congressmen for free transportation. The president of one of these railroads is reported to have said, I never was in favour of granting political transportation, and now I have a good opportunity to cut off these deadheads. Transportation has been given them the past on the theory that they were friends, but when we needed friends, they were not there. This, however, is only a passing phase, an emergency measure to punish a few congressmen who have shown so little appreciation of the right of the railroads to make the laws affecting transportation that they actually voted for what they deemed right or for what the people desired rather than for what the railroads wanted. Aside from such little eddies, the great stream of deadheadism flows on as smooth and deep as ever. The people take the thing so much as matter of course that it has been a constant cause of surprise to passengers on the New York, New Haven and Hartford Railroad to see Governor Douglas pay his fare day by day as he travelled to and fro on an ordinary commutation ticket. A prominent judge of Chicago tells me that for years the leading railroads entering the city have sent him annual passes without request. I found the same thing in Denver, San Francisco, New York, Boston, and nearly everywhere else I have been in this country. The mayor of one of our giant cities told me this morning that the principal railroads sent him annuals, but he returned them. It would be better if he would turn the next lot over to Publicity League or put them in a museum. In many cases, the railroads are practically forced to give passes. A.B. Stickney, president of the Chicago and Great Western Railroad, was asked by the Industrial Commission about giving passes to members of the judiciary of Minnesota and Illinois. President Stickney said, if any of them ask for transportation, they get it. We don't hesitate to give to men of that class if they ask for passes. We never feel at liberty to refuse. Is there any good reason why a judge who gets a good salary should have a pass, any greater reason than why John Smith should have a pass. That depends, said President Stickney, on what you call a good reason. Twenty-five years ago, 
I had charge of a little bit of road that was a sort of subordinate of a larger road. I had occasion to visit the presidents of the superior road about something, and he said, Mr. Stickney, I see that the sheriff of this county has a pass over your road. I should like to know on what principle you gave that sheriff a pass. I did it on the principle that he was a power, and I was afraid to refuse him, I said. Well, said he, I refused him. You will wish you hadn't before this year is over, I replied. Some time afterwards, and during the year, I went into the office to see the superintendent, but he was not in. I went into the general freight agent's office, and he was not in. I went into the general manager's office, and he was not in. So I then went into the office of the president and said, What kind of road have you got? Your superintendent is not here. Your general freight agent is not here. And your general manager is not here. He hung his head down and said, Do you remember that conversation we had about the sheriff's pass? He's got all those men on the jury and has stuck them for about two weeks. That answer seems to indicate that railroads would be afraid to refuse for fear of the penalties. I think the railroads find there is a class of men that it is to their interest not to refuse if they ask for passes. Van Oss says that at one time in the country, half the passengers rode on passes. That seems incredible. There is no doubt, however, that the pass evil was enormous before it was checked by state and federal legislation and still prevails to an astonishing extent. Six years after the Interstate Act prohibited all preferences and 20 years after the state crusade against passes and other discriminations began. Seawood Davis, a railroad auditor of large experience and an executive officer having authority to issue passes, stated that 10% of the railway traveller of this country is free. The result being that the great mass of railway users are yearly mulcted some 33 million for the benefit of the favoured few. No account of these passes is rendered to the state, nation or confiding stakeholders. If 10% still ride deadhead, as is quite probable, the resulting tax upon paying railway users is now over $50 million a year. The effect of legislation has been to give the railways an excuse for shutting off the less influential of the former deadheads, while the big people ride free in spite of the law. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Railroads in the Early 1900s. 
If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Bore You to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.